Welcome back to part two of the latest episode of The Yoke with Doak. Longtime associate Don Plasek joins Tom to discuss routing. As a reminder, be sure to check out Tom's Confidential Guides to Golf Courses. These are the best books if you enjoy reading about golf courses. You can find them on renaissancegolf.com, and they make for great gifts. And now, part two of our discussion on routing. the yolk. And the famously candid dope doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. I imagine maintenance is another thing that goes into it a little bit in the sense of if the greens are close by, it's, it's less gas, easier, faster to maintain, easier to mow greens or, you know, does it, does that play a role in routing at all? A little, maybe not as much as you, you're thinking there, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, for maintenance, the old style courses were, you know, you've got a bunch of parallel halls and you can mow green. You don't necessarily mow all the greens in order because yeah. it's because it, it's it's much faster to hop from this green across the next tee to the green that's coming back the other way two holes later. And you just there's a you know, you can get around much quicker, whereas, you know, the modern courses that are all stretched out and and every hole is a beautiful view. You pretty much have to maintain the golf course in the order that you play it. And so the maintenance guys are going all the way around the golf course every day to get it done. Yeah, I was thinking about McKenzie and how he'd have like five greens all yeah. within like sure. Uh, if you drew a four hundred yard circle, there'd be. I was five. just at the, I was just at the Valley Club the other day. You know, uh-huh. they had a they had a flood event there a, a month ago, and they were trying to put the pieces back together. They had, they had five feet of mud come across one of the greens. But that course, there's a couple of little hills that he just maxed out as many holes as you could possibly get around them. So this, there's this one hill in the middle of the property that the third green sits right into the foot of it. The fourth tee is elevated, playing off it. Fifth hole plays past it. Seventh hole comes back to the foot of it. The eighth tee is on it. The tenth green comes up to the foot of it, and the eleventh tee is on it. So three of the four par threes, the tee is on that hill. <laughs> So it brings back, so this is something I went on a Northern California golf trip recently and, you know, played a ton of McKenzie and the thing, the, the layering, how much, does that come into mind? Like we're using bunkers on other holes to make it look like it's on, on the specific hole and visually deceiving. Do you get, I mean, how does that, how do you usually, even get usually there? that comes in once, once the routing is in place, mm-hmm. you're not thinking about that level of detail. You might, you might notice if you've done it enough times that, oh yes, but, but you're not really, I'm not trying for that at the routing level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to come up, you know, once I've got a routing, it's like, oh, you know, all I have to do is move the T over a little bit and then I'm looking at the other hole out there and, and I can do some visual things because of that or or you know what doesn't show up on a topo map two things that don't show up on a topo map are trees and views sometimes you can tell what the view is going to be the general view like it's sabonic you know where the bay is and you're going to be looking at water you don't know that there's some particular house or feature across the bay that might draw your eye but you know, oh, I'm looking toward the water here. Uh, you know, you don't know where the where the really big, beautiful oak is until you get out there and start figuring out how to clear it. And then maybe, you know, once you walk it in the woods a couple of times, you'll say, okay, this tree, I'm playing for this tree. But still, when you are, you know, usually when you're building the course, you'll find that I want to move the tee to the left some or to the right some so that I'm looking right at this thing instead of it's just kind of off to the left there somewhere. Um, 
So now that we just talked about Mackenzie, we had some questions. Uh, we had a couple of them actually about golden age architects. Which golden age architect stands out as the most adept at routing courses? And that's from Pete O. Hmm. I don't think I, I can't. I can't evaluate them all on an equal basis. I mean, I'm, I'm much, I've worked much more on some of their work than others. You know, I think Mackenzie was the best that I know, or he's the one I stole the most from as far as, you know, little sequences of holes that get you back to the same place. Like I was describing at the Valley club or like you see at Royal Melbourne or Cypress point metal club. Most of his courses, you know, he would take a few features and say, okay, I'm going to get as many holes working off that as I can. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't, I haven't spent as much time on Tillinghast courses or Perry Maxwell courses to, to rule them out as being great at this too. But I've seen a ton of Donald Ross courses if you just had a 150-acre rectangle, Donald Ross was as good as anybody ever lived at that because he, you know, because he came up with a hundred different versions of it somewhere in America in that in that time period. You know, he he was very good at you know when you get a rectangular piece of property and you're trying to fit holes in. It's very easy to fall into just playing parallel with the property lines you know like in the midwest nearly everything nearly every piece of land you get is is like rectangles or you know the land was all sectioned off in like 40 acre sections originally so you'll either get a square or a rectangle of 40 acre blocks and if, interestingly a 40 acre block is a quarter mile 440 yards from one end to the other so if it's pretty well at the dimensions of golf, you know, if you played down to the end of the rectangle and across the back, that would be a 400 yard hole. You have to, you know, you need a little room behind the green. So you see, you see people playing around the edges of the property a lot. And once you play along this property line and that property line, and you've got limited space in between, you know, the holes just get parallel really fast. Ross was great at not doing that. Either putting the clubhouse in the corner where everything had to fan out but just just getting something in there that was on a diagonal and then figuring out a way to get that back to square at the corner or better still not getting the square at the corner because a lot of the things a lot of the things we wind up dealing with on older courses is they've got boundary issues because they had a hole playing right along the property line and you know Mackenzie uh Moortown one of his early courses in England when he built it, there was a golf course on either side of it. And so he played holes right along the right along the boundary fence, you know, where if you drove closer to the boundary fence, you got a better angle to the green. And if you drove away from it, it was a tougher shot. So eventually those two other golf courses next to him, the clubs moved further out of town. And now there's housing developments on both sides. So now that hole where you want to drive right next to the fence, you can't do that. You know, that homeowner is making them move the hole in. You know, they needed to get a little more land at the end of the golf course to fix it because they couldn't they they couldn't pack as many holes across the middle of the site as, as Mackenzie did. Um, so Ross was a genius at that. I'm sure there's other architects that were too, but I know that's a hard thing to do. And he seemed like he did it really well. I, I think thinking a little bit about that too it's interesting that at the time those golden age courses were being built they were designed and built by the guys they were drawing their inspiration from not from the u.s because it hadn't evolved yet it didn't exist so they brought those ideas over and they were allowed to incorporate those ideas because they were the expert on the task at the time but over time as we do in the United States, we've Americanized everything and we've to a degree Americanized architecture and we've come up with these industry standards on 
length and balance and all of those kinds of things. And the modern architects have taken those and tried to imprint them on whatever property they have, and let a, and, and which is almost a complete departure of letting the, the property dictate what things ought to be. And, and, you know, when you can move things around and cut and fill and, and, and strip and regrass and reveg and change everything that you, you know, that would normally drive a design, you can just wipe it out and recreate it and move everything around. The idea that you're an architect seems to have demonstrated at some point that if you're not doing some or a lot of that, you're not really an architect. You must not be that good at what you do. And, and to watch that evolution go from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other is, is pretty fascinating. And I think that's just what we do in the United States. We've sort That was the American way to, to, to sort of do that. And I, I think it's exciting to see that now that we've been there a while, there is a, a, a new focus on going back to how it started, thankfully. And as a result, things are probably going to be a little bit better by default, obviously, the more we pay attention to that way. Um, but, you know, and, and it's, it's, you know, having clients that will allow you to, to do wow. those things. And, and that's, that's, that's as much good fortune as being talented at what you do is having a client that really allows you to let you max out your talents. Right. And, you know, 80% of what you're saying goes back to what is the primary purpose of this golf course? And, you know, unfortunately, at least half the golf courses built in America in the last 50 years were built. The primary purpose was housing development. It wasn't golf at all. Um, and the architects, you know, we don't get those kind of jobs. We never have. When I started out, my name wasn't worth anything to, you know, to a housing developer. So I, you know, I started with daily fee golf courses and then resorts. But, you know, I still didn't get my name up there as being a big enough name architect to be attractive to a housing developer until just when that market crashed. We were, we were signed up to do two or three of them in 2008 and they all went away. <laughs> um, but you know, when, you know, when Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman stands up at the opening, would stand up at the opening day of a, of a housing development golf course and say, you know, what a great client. He let me route the golf course first anywhere I wanted to go. And then they designed the housing around it. No, <laughs> it does not. It can't happen that way. You know, you because because you can't build a hole that ends 250 feet from the property line over there and leave the developer not enough room to do anything with that. You know, not enough room for a house and a road and another house you know, then it's just wasted space to them. So it can't work like that. At, at a minimum, you're going back and forth with the land planner doing the development, kind of, you know, wrestling with them over what, you know, I want to put the hole there. No, you can't. You got to move it over here. So I have some space there. And sometimes you're, you know, this, the same feature that you want to include in a golf hole, that's a great place to put a house or the clubhouse or the hotel. So you're, you're constantly in a tug of war over who gets to use this feature, the housing development or the golf. So now, if the golf is not really important to the client, like at least equally important to the development, the golf course architect's going to lose those arguments every time. And the odds that you're going to build a really good golf course go way, way down because you're, you're not getting to do the routing anymore. So off of that, we have a... a just a seemingly seemingly limitless supply of golf courses that you just described. If if somebody was going to renovate those instead of you know a lot of them should probably close, but say somebody was going to renovate one, like how would you attack something like that? Would you you know where you're kind of very constricted? Well, it depends how they're done. I mean, first of all. 
not that many of them are going to close because the people that own the real estate around them have a vested interest in them not closing. And unfortunately, even if they go through bankruptcy and the value goes to zero, then then it's worth it to somebody to buy them for, you know, if you could buy the golf course for a dollar because mm-hmm. nobody really wants to run it, then you could probably make a go of it. The guy that, you know, the people that invested $10 million building it, no, they're out of luck. Um, but... You know, so it depends on a development course, like how much, you know, how small do they divide up the parcels? If you've just got a bunch of single golf halls with houses on both sides, you have no flexibility with the routing at all, or almost none. Maybe you could make what's a par four and a par three into a par three and a par four. That probably doesn't make any difference in overall because they, you know... If if a if the whole development was laid out like that, then those green sites weren't located on a natural piece of ground anyway. They you know they they graded the lot to either side, so you can't if even if it was natural, it would be hard to tell that it was. Um, so now it's just a shaping exercise. You know what can we do to make this cooler? Can we make the bunkers prettier? You know if the corridors are pretty narrow, if they only let you. You know, nobody wants to say what the standard is for how how wide a golf hole has to be between houses on both sides. If if I said it in this podcast, somebody would sue me in ten years because because Riley used that used that dimension in a golf course that he built, and not only would they sue him, they'd sue me because I told him. So you know, nobody says, but obviously. You know, developers are interested in making that as narrow as it can be so they can sell more homes. And once you do that, you can't even build a hole where you want to hit it right or left. You know, that's all predicated on hitting it down the middle of the corridor. And, you know, you need 150 feet or whatever to the right of it to be safe. So you can't if you design a hole where you want to hit it down the right side or the left side, then you're playing too close to the houses on one side and you can't go there. So it's really hard with that setup to design anything that's really interesting. If it's more than that, if you've got at least two holes in the middle between the houses, then you got a chance. If it's more than that, where it's kind of a more or less a core golf course with housing around the outside and maybe it sticks in somewhere, then you've got some options and maybe you can really do something. But there's a ton of golf courses that are one hole wide with houses on both sides and I can't imagine that I would, you know, we get calls all the time. Do you want to redesign this? If, if that's the land plan, I don't, I don't think there's anything much I can do with that. You can make it prettier. You can make the greens more interesting, but you know, to me, that's not enough. I was just thinking about one that I grew up by and like every single hole is siloed by itself. And like, there's really nothing you can do. There's decent width between them, but you can't really do that much. There's not enough width to to get two holes on it. It's, I think the hardest part of it is really when you destroy the frame on both sides. Yeah. You know, there's no natural land to the right or the left that, I, that it ties into anything. You know, it just gets divorced from being a natural landscape at all. If I, you've got two holes wide, then the, then maybe there's natural land in between and trees and some things that looks like, you know, and then you just try to focus inward on that as much as you can. I feel like it naturally it evolves if it's that into a a tunnel because the the houses need to have the water runoff onto the golf course oh, that too. too. Yeah. <laughs> so you got, got like a, a, a essentially playing through like a half pipe on every single hole. Right. Um, so which um, from Brett, a, uh, a former uh, intern, which routing that you have done is your favorite, which was the most puzzling and the most rewarding. So a three part pot, uh, a three part question and we'll have, we'll have Don, uh, answer the first and then Tom, you answer the last two. Okay. Which, which, which so part of the question is Don, Don's got favorite and then you've got puzzling and rewarding. Wow. That's a great question. Favorite. Um, 
I'll have to think about that for a little bit. If you've got answers to the next two, I'd be happy to let you start, Tom. Um, All right. Well, the most puzzling. There's two that I would put in the most puzzling. Rock Creek, we started with an 80,000 acre ranch. The first two times I was there, I never even got to the part of the ground where the golf course is now. You know, it's like, holy hell, this is so much ground. How do I even, how do I look at this? I should have probably started with a helicopter or something. But, um, you know, so there were a lot of iterations of that. And, and the first couple were just, okay, which part of all this land are we going to? And then some back and forth with the client as well. You know, ironically, one of the things that, that made that one hard, the valley where the last three holes are, it's just beautiful for golf. I mean, you, you've got, you're playing down this narrow little valley and the, the, the creek runs right down it. And there's at the bottom end of it, there are these two big rock pinnacles and the valley gets really narrow. Like you can't really, just the creek goes through past where the 17th green is. So you couldn't really put any more golf holes down that way. It got too narrow to do anything. Uh, so it's a beautiful little secluded spot, but at the bottom end below there, there's a big power line going across the valley and you can see it. And when I first saw it, I was like, damn, that's a beautiful spot. But if, if I had 80,000 acres to work with and, and I put these last couple of holes right where you're looking at the power lines, everybody's going to go, why did you have to do that? You know, you had all this ground where you didn't have to look at the power lines. Why would you look at them? So, so the first couple of versions of the routing that I did for the client, we didn't go there. We just didn't use that part of the ground. We obviously had a lot more ground we could use. And then one of Bill's good friends is a guy named Tom Devlin, who um, developed Flint Hills National in Wichita. Very good golfer. And, and Tom, Tom was one of the guys that Bill had come and look at my routing. And Tom Devlin was like, why don't you go down there? It's beautiful for golf holes down there. And I said, well, yeah, it is, but you're going to look at the power lines. And we got to talking about it, and we finally all agreed, yes, those power lines are there, but if you're going to let that distract you from it's a beautiful, you know, it's not like there, it's not like there's a tower right next to the green. Yeah. They're behind there a ways. You know, if you're going to let that distract you from the fact that these are three great holes in a beautiful setting, you're just an asshole. <laughs> you know, it might get you the first time. That might be your overall impression. But for the members, the people that live there, that's no big deal. It's just there. It's in the background. So what? Uh, it was hard to get over that, but they were absolutely right. I mean, that was the best place for those. It was the best place for the golf course to finish just partly because the, you know, the, the golf course starts from the clubhouse and works way up the hill and way down. And instead of just coming down to the clubhouse and ending, it goes past it and it comes back into the mountain view at the end. So from that perspective, it was really good. Uh, but, you know, letting go of that took a long time. And then Ballyneal was the other one because, you know, we found the f 1, 9, 10, and 18 kind of how to get in and out of the clubhouse pretty fast. We found a lot of good holes out there. Some of them kind of a little too far away if you had to go out one and get back nine. But the really hard part was number two. Once you, once you got to one green, you were way above where most of the golf course was. And there was no obvious good way down there. You know, every time, every hole we looked at was like, well, you're just going to hit downhill into the wind where it could go anywhere. And then you're going to wind up in a place, if it's a longer hole, you're probably going to wind up in a place where you can't see the green very well because you're going to wind up in this bowl and then there's, there's no good angle to go from there. So I was stumped for a long time. It didn't help that, you know, they weren't very well funded. I couldn't tell if they were serious or not. So, so it was like, I was only there for a day or two at a time on the way to somewhere else. And I didn't spend like four or five days in a row to really get it figured out. 
and you'd get you just get lost out there you had a thousand acres of dunes to work with and every time i'd leave i was like damn it i just didn't get far enough to figure this out and finally the last time i was the last time in that process i said well what's over the fence you know we we were looking at the second hole and and the second green is about 100 yards or 150 yards past where their property line ended and the third hole is all on property that they didn't own and that i hadn't seen you know you could see the second green but you couldn't see what was going on over there at number three and you couldn't see once you walked up over that hill what the view was off of 40. and i said what's over there you know because it's all just barren dunesland Nobody's really, it's ranch land, but nobody's using it for anything in particular. They just graze animals. So it's like, you know, we, we went over and as soon as we got to where 3T was, I was like, this is a lot better way down off the hill. You know, can we trade some of this, a little of this land for something else down there? You know, just swap, make an even swap with your, your neighbor. So that's how that worked out. But it took like, that was after I'd been on the property four or five times already. And the funny thing is that land that we couldn't figure out how to get down from behind number one green two years ago when they, when they called me back and said, you know, we'd like to consider doing another little facility of some kind. We've got, we've got a little more water than we need for the golf course. So we got like enough to water seven or eight acres more turf. You know, what would you do with that? You know, we could build a part, we could build a range that's not exciting you know could we build like a short course or a couple a couple extra holes or you know what we wound up doing a par three course you know almost as soon as he said it i realized that the land that was too severe for the for the second hole that was probably going to be good for the par three course so all that land that we dodged around to get the first routing right we wound up using for the mulligan course just last year that's uh and kind of is a smart thing if you think about like courses that force 18 holes onto property versus routing the best holes you can and then using those little plots of land for like practice areas and short courses as opposed to putting bad golf holes on it would be a smart thing for golf. Yeah. I mean, I don't. It's really hard for me to visualize that golf would get away from 18 holes or, or nine holes. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a big champion of great nine hole golf courses. There aren't many because everybody thinks, oh, that's not real. But, you know, when you've got a really great nine hole course, going around it twice is a good thing. <laughs> it's yeah. not a bad thing. <laughs> um, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, to have – some of the best work I've seen in the last five years is like working with little pieces of land and coming up with some par three holes or a little short course or some alternate version of the main course or something that is really thinking outside of the box, but there's a lot of good golf in a small space. So Don, do you uh, come up with your favorite routing? Uh I did, Andy. I think it was useful to be able to think about it a little bit. And favorite, if you stretch that term a little bit, I think um, the it's my favorite for different reasons, not just liking the holes I found necessarily, but it it's more by the fact that I was part of the construction process and finding the holes. The, the routing is the second course at um, Stonewall. Uh, the North Course, affectionately known as the Utter Course, and all kinds of, of other names for it. But uh, I was involved in trying to figure out where the holes were going to go with Tom from the beginning. And it's it's got, you know, it's an odd-shaped piece of ground. It's got elevation. It has um, sort of a starting and finishing point with the existing barn and, and sort of farmhouse that we lived in during construction that was going to become that was going to serve in that capacity. So you had a couple of givens in the equation, but going around clockwise or counterclockwise, and if you're going to going to cross over where and proximity to roads and all that kind of stuff, there was a lot to be learned. But when we settled on where the holes were going to go, to be privileged to be, you know, on site and 
trying to get those ideas in the ground from the beginning all the way to the end really made it my favorite because some of the preconceived notions that I thought I had on what was going to be good ended up maybe not what I thought at all. And you, you learn from that, you know, you really do start looking off site and past, you know, the, the church steeple that serves as a backdrop backdrop for the fourth and seventh Mm -hmm. greens, you know, the, the, the barn at the sixth, all of that kind of stuff. You really, that resonates and it, and it, it stays with you the rest of the way. And, and I just learned so much from the learning curve on that project was so sharp because it was really the first time that I had been in that position. And thank God Tom surrounded me with a lot of talent. You know, Brian Schneider was, was there right from the get go and, and brought all his shaping and green contour and green, uh, experience, building experience with him. And Kai Golby was there and Eric Iverson did a stint uh, or a couple of them and Brian Slonick as well. And, and Kyle Franz, Will Smith. I mean, the really long list, Toby Cobb and Dan Proctor from Bill and Ben's camp were, were there. So how could I go wrong? I mean, I just, but I didn't know that. I didn't know the value of those guys getting the ideas into the ground but to be able to watch the the on paper part of of the whole design really get realized and all the different decisions that go into um, the final version of whatever it was, we were shucking and jiving all over the place trying to get everything just right, and we were allowed to do that, which was a real privilege. But well, there's you know the interesting part of that, and you're right, you do you you. It's at some point it's important to have enough experience actually building a golf course to understand like the holes that don't quite fit the little transitions that you're trying to make to get, you know, you've got a bunch of holes, you know, are good, but there's some places where it doesn't fit together really well. And it's like, is that fixable in the field? You know, and I have certainly seen modern golf courses where somebody routed it and just said, oh, they'll fix that in the field. And it wasn't fixable. There was no way in the world you could move dirt forever and not get a good hole there. But the guy routing it didn't understand that because he never spent any time on the field. You know, he just figured, well, if they throw enough at it, they'll get it. You know, and and there's other ones that, okay, that's bland, but you know, I can see how the, I can see how I'm going to make that work. So you have to, you know, if the holes don't all fit together perfectly from one to 18, you also have to understand enough about what you're going to do. You don't have to necessarily fi- have it all figured out in the beginning, but you have to understand that you're putting yourself in a situation that's not unsolvable <laughs> and you can easily put yourself in a situation that's unsolvable. All you ha- really, the, The most unsolvable thing is just if you've got a severe side slope with no bottom that you can work off of, it's really hard to build anything good, any longer hole. You can build a par three pretty much anywhere. But once you've got to have a landing area for a par four and you think about where people could drive it, they could drive it all over the place on a hole like that. It's hard to do enough earthwork to receive all of those tee shots. I think Tom's absolutely spot on there too i think you're as you're looking on a on a a blank piece of property finding good short holes good par threes are that's really easy and it gets progressively worse from there finding the really good long holes is actually a lot harder because you by you just need the space and you you and so you know what with stonewall going up and over the pretty much the kind of ground that tom was just describing yeah and getting a long hole out of some of the most difficult part of the property. Like that's sa- the third hole. That's oh, exactly yeah. right. That's exactly uh-huh. right. And that's the fourth hole at Royal Melbourne. Yeah. I mean, it's just blatantly stolen from Mackenzie's thing because I, because I'd noticed when I was at Royal Melbourne how, you know, doing the one thing that we normally don't do is go up and over a big hole, a big hill, you know, made the other holes work perfect, playing back into the hill, and. So <laughs> that's an example it, of the, the walk, the tough walk up the hill after a tee shot that you talked about earlier too. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. If you just walked all the way to the top of that hill to play the next hole, it would be bad. But but on that on that part of that property, the top of that hill, mm-hmm. it's about two hundred and fifty or three hundred yards from where the green is for number four. Yeah. It's about three hundred yards from like any angle that you could go around that property. It's kind of in the middle along a property line, but you just you didn't have any long holes in that section that there's four or five holes if you played up to that and back off. They were all really short holes. Mm-hmm. So the only way to get something of any length was just suck it up and go up over it and get one long hole and then fit everything else in. You're kind of fitting. When we did that, we also managed to get eight and seven kind of on the diagonal through the middle of the property and get some long holes there. That it's a, another example of kind of uh, we talked about earlier with like the distinct sections of property where, you know, one and two are kind of their own little area. Right. And then the third tee shots its own area. But then you get up and it's a vast open space. And then you go back after the eighth hole, the par five. You have the par three and ten and eighteen are its own little That's a little section. pocket, right. but then you get across the road and it's this vast open space again. Exactly, and that's you know we you know we've talked at least we spent all this time talking about routing, and all those all those young guys that want to be architects are probably really frustrated because we haven't told them anything about how to do it. <laughs> and the first thing that you do is you break it you break it down into a few parts, just like you talked about, mm-hmm. you know. That first little bit where one and two and three T are, that's a separate section from everything else. And you, you, you know, whether you were going to wind up at three T or kind of more up the hill on number three, you couldn't come, you couldn't go any farther because property lines there. You couldn't come back past the clubhouse with a hole. So that's a little section to work out on its own. And then that big three through eight, that's a section to work out on its own. And 9 and 10 and 18, that's a section to work out on its own. And then the other part is, too. So, you know, almost any property is like that. Even if, you know, Stonewall has road crossings and stone walls and things mm-hmm. that really break it up. You know, Lost Dunes has an interstate highway going through the middle of it. So, obviously, there's at least two pieces there. But nearly every property breaks up into three or four or five or six different parts. And the main reason they break up is because you're going over a hill and you don't want to play a blind hole. So you're going to try to get the last hole in one section, like up close to the top of the hill, and then the next tee up on the top going over into the next section. And when you change a routing, you know, when I play golf with somebody on a course I built and they go, oh, it's really cool, but I think you should have put that green over there. Okay. But then where was the, where was the next tee going? Because <laughs> that's, you never change one hole at a time. Yeah. I guess it's possible, you know, if, the T is to the right and your green site was further right. Maybe you could do that. But but ne- nearly anything you change, you're going to change two or three holes to make it work. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, cutting out a hole, saying, oh, I can't do that. Or I'm going to combine these two holes into one. Now you don't have 18 anymore. <laughs> you have to find someplace else to get that hole back. So it's, you know, that's the Rubik's Cube part. When you do one thing, it changes other things. So you you always have to be conscious of how you're going to come back to it being being the right number of holes at the end. One of the things I really learned Stonewall again is the process. You talk about compartmentalizing sections of the property. If if you can get two holes in one particular section that you like that are good that work, that's great. But if you can get three in there or four that you like that work that function. That just gives you way more leeway to wiggle around and get bigger and more creative in the other pieces that are left over. So each piece that you can really max out gives you more freedom in all of the others. And it's exactly like Tom says, it's a ripple effect. You're not changing one hole or one thing and it, it, it stops there. Often it, it resonates into two and three and four and yeah. five holes going yep. all over the place and then getting them all to fit together as 18 no doubt. That's the that's the next lesson in routing. Once you break it down, it's like, how can you get the most out of this one? And you know, when high point, the 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 one little piece I wrote on routing and the anatomy of a golf course was about 
the start of the back nine at high point there was like a 40 acre block of land that was in back of everything else and it was by far the prettiest land you know it was it was covered with ferns and these it was very sandy hilly it was covered with ferns and these little tiny pine trees that they planted for erosion control but but when we when we were starting the golf course they were only like hip high and you could you could almost rip them out of the ground by hand to clear them. <laughs> you, you just we, we just wrapped a chain around them and pulled them out with a bucket of a tractor basically and you know when i first looked at that piece of the ground i was like oh there'd be a cool hole playing diagonally across here to this green site right here and then there'd be a cool hole up there coming out and i had like two or three holes in 40 acres and and it took me maybe a couple of days to get to forget about that. It's like, that's the best piece of the property. I should get five holes in there if I can. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that was, you know, it's like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and part the 15th tee coming out of it. We're all in that section of your land. And anybody who ever played the golf course, that was the best part of the golf course. And that's why you wanted to go back there. So, so yeah, once you've got it broken up, it's like, Okay, what's the best part of this? How do I get the most out of that? And that's, you know, it's not just one hole. It's like the best combination of three or four or five holes. But, but you know, that's kind of where a routing starts. It's, uh, yeah, you, you got to maximize. Rather than having one great hole that hogs the best feature, is right. using that feature as much as exactly. you can. So that it, you get the most, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's uh, so Don, you, you bring a lot of these routings and ideas to life drawing and uh, a lot of the world like myself are, are absolute awful artists. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> what are, what are some just tips for drawing that you have for, cause I, I there, I feel like there's more and more armchair architects, guys that like to doodle, you know, routings and sketches what what kind of advice do you have well the advice i think is maybe to now that we have more resources to do it pay attention to what the old guys did not you know we're talking about building golf and realizing actual golf holes but i just did the same thing with drawing too you know the more plans that you can get your hands on from the guys that did it a long time ago um there's always something there, whether, you know, it's as simple or as irrelevant as a North arrow. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that kind of catch my eye. And how do they depict grassing lines and, and you know, center lines and tees and greens and, and flags and that kind of stuff. And there's really good stuff out there. And, and you know, I'm not quite sure what my style is, but it's it's really not uniquely my own. Certainly, it's just a you know, a, a conglomerate of a bunch of other things that someone else has already done that I saw, and I'm just putting them together maybe in a slightly different way. But I'm, you know, for me personally, I'm fascinated by the really old maps all the way down to tees, greens, and bunkers and different fonts, different styles. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's like most things, if you enjoy it, that's going to drive you to, to investigate it. And if you investigate it, you're going to discover a lot of stuff. And it's, plus it's just a hell of a lot of fun, honestly. Um, and it, it's interesting too, because I think it can be, it can be somewhat of a distraction in the architectural process, because if you put that kind of stuff in front of a client early on, and for whatever reason, they really like it. And, you know, they're already having trouble picturing in their mind's eye what's this going to look like, and they're getting ready to write checks, or people are getting ready to write checks, and they want to be comfortable that what they that the unknown is going to turn out a certain way. So you have to be careful not to put something out there in a way that, you know, you're not going to be able to make all the really necessary changes that we've been talking about for a while now in the field because that's what really matters yeah that's what really really matters so um you know there's a, a level of responsibility that you have i think in sort of um projecting an idea 
And it's good to get people excited, but it's all, I've also learned it's really important to make sure they understand. Don't love it too much because it <laughs> could change. There's a disclaimer on the side. <laughs> yeah. And, it but may there needs not to look be. like this. <laughs> yeah. There really needs to be Something that disclaimer. Yeah. And, and invariably it does. And I think that's what makes Tom and, you know, Renaissance um, somewhat unique is we kind of go in not entirely sure. We just are confident that at the end, it's going to be good because we're pouring ourselves into it and we've had good luck doing it that way. So, um, you know, the, the, the drawings can be helpful, but, uh, you know, they're, they're also, uh, they're just a tool. They're just a, they're just a, a launch pad. They're not the end all be all. And a lot of times when you see, you know, somebody's gone to great lengths at the beginning of the project to do all these renderings of what it's going to look like and stuff. A lot of times they're just stealing, you know, it's for the third hole at Stonewall, they would just put a picture in there of the fourth hole at Royal Melbourne and say, it's going to be like that. You know, in China, they would actually take a picture of Royal Melbourne and maybe flip it over or, or Photoshop something out and just use it like that was the whole, it, it was already built. <laughs> you know, there's extreme versions of it, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the more you try to do stuff like that at the beginning, it's, it winds up being really derivative of like other things that are already existing. If you're really trying to do something original, you're not going to do that on paper before you start. You're going to do that when you're out there. You know how you know that's the fact, too, I think, is, you know, with technology that we have now, if we go back to the first plan that Tom had on a on a golf course that was what we thought was going to be the routing. And then subsequently, you know, the, the project is done, it's built and there are irrigation GPS as built of exactly where the tees ended up and the, how the greens are shaped and, and the, what the grassing lines look like. It's fascinating to look at what we started with and what we actually ended up building. And often they don't resemble in a lot of ways what we started with and the the configuration of grassing lines at the end is just it it looks pretty crazy you know it 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 is really a, a full on evolution and it, i think part of that is because that's what the ground dictated so we that's what we paid attention to and you can't get that level of detail at the beginning but we also spend a lot of time trying to get grassing lines right when we're shaping then, things i mean i just remember from from high point and from one or two other things when I built them that that what you built that looks so cool on the ground looks very plain on paper. Mm. It's like there's, you know, you get a, I mean, the the eighth hole at Crystal Downs, one of my favorite golf holes in the world. On paper, there's no fairway bunkers. Mm -hmm. You know, the it's all about the topography and the landing area. And unless you can read a topo map really well, yeah. you can't tell <laughs> what the hell say. is going on there. So it just looks like, any standard muni hot dog dog leg right yeah i mean there's nothing there in 2d on a plan view that you go oh wow that's a really cool hole yeah because <laughs> it's all in the third dimension that's like and the you, perfect and you, example and, and if you're trying to make it look cool in the beginning you're going to embellish it and add fairway bunkers and do all these things to make it look cool that it doesn't need out there on the ground um so with with golf courses closing and you know there's like a perfect example is that engineers is closing this year i think but is it actually closing i mean i, I know so. that i know the deal's been done to sell it but i also know that well if it's like you know we worked on north shore which is not far from there yeah. and north shore if they had sold the club to a developer it would have taken them five years before they could build any homes minimum so the mm -hmm. golf course was going to last for a while anyway um one place where you were a big part of the recovery was Ashkenesh up in, uh, with I was, we were a very small part of the recovery there. Somebody else, Martin Ebert and those guys really recovered the golf course. Mm -hmm. We've just tinkered around with it a little since then. And by a little, I mean a little, <laughs> um, I guess Trevor Dormer wanted to know about how close do you think today's routing is to the original? Askernish, yeah. I have no honest way of judging that. Yeah. I don't. I honestly don't think that. You know, 
when Martin Ebert and Gordon Irvin walked it originally and and put the routing together, they didn't. They had nobody had a map of it from before, um, so they just they just went by their eye and supposedly their vision of what they thought old Tom Morris would have done by his eye, <laughs> which, you know, things are so different today that I, you know, I would say uh, one of the best holes at Askernish is the, gotta make sure I get the numbers right. Pretty sure it's the eighth, the little short par four that you, you know, you play that great seventh hole down into the valley and then you walk up out of it and the tee is kind of benched into a little dune and the eighth hole is going, it's a short par four and there's a bunker by the green and then you're looking out over the water and there's another island in the background. I think it's Barra or one of the other islands. And that could be exactly the hole that old Tom Morris did. I don't know. But to me, it just the presentation of it was much more modern. Yeah, Tom Morris wasn't interested or at least – I haven't noticed on very many of his other courses where he tried to get the tee just up in the right spot so you could see a certain amount of water and so that island would be straight in the background. So they might be in the right place, but I, I suspect that there's other things that creep into it that they're not even conscious of. So so once you get into the, like, especially once you get into the, the far end of the golf course from the clubhouse, like 11, 12, 13. Those are the holes that I, that I don't really know if they're in the same places at all or not. You know, when you're first, when you go from the, the kind of flatter ground to where seven and eight and those are, those seem pretty obvious, Mm -hmm. you know, but again, the further you get away from something that, you know, the less likely that they're in exactly the same place. Um, a big trend in golf's been abstract routings, like we've talked a lot about a little bit. Car for the Course has an idea for a 24-hole course with four six-hole loops. And you could play 18 holes, and then you'd have six holes open for open play at all times. And you could rotate them around. Um, what are your thoughts on that? he's written a long post about it also. (laughs) He's got a website so everybody can go read it. I think he called it the Clover course. Um, And uh, if, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what abstract routing or idea would you want to design that you haven't done yet? If you want to give it away. So his Clover course is just a little bit short. You remember, you might not be old enough. Don will be old enough. You remember when they had that superstars competition on TV in the 70s? They like, took all the athletes and had them do like a decathlon type thing where they're doing against a whole bunch other. of different sports against each other. Right. They held it in a place called Rotunda, Florida, which is like over on the west side near – it's not far from Gasparilla. And uh, their idea for the land plan for this town was it was a city in the round and everything was going to be in the round. So they, they put a clubhouse kind of in the middle and they were – they were going to have six golf courses eventually. They only have one. <laughs> but but to start, they built like every three holes looped back to the clubhouse. So eventually they could spoke off and keep going and build a bunch more holes. So they do they every third hole comes back to the clubhouse. It's crazy. It's it's very limiting if you think about it. It's like what can you do? It's like a par five and then a three and a four coming back is it's hard to get away from that as, as, as programmed as they were. So, you know, what his idea sounds like, you know, I'm not big on this 12 hole thing that everybody, you know, people are trying, you know, I think of golf in terms of nine or 18 and I understand Prestwick was 12 holes originally. And I would love to play that 12 hole golf course, but but I think you're going to have a hard time getting away from nine or 18. So there are also, there's a lot of 27 hole golf courses in the world based on the exact same theory that he's talking about. You know, we could start people on three different nines in the morning and then have them flip over to a different nine and keep going and get more people out there. We can close one of the nines and do work on it and still have an 18 hole golf course operationally there are a lot of advantages to doing it that way 
the one big downside of doing it that way is that if you're trying to do something really good and noteworthy, the first question from everybody is, well, what's the main course? What's the really good one? And then you're stuck. As soon as somebody identifies that this is the best way, the A and C nines are the best combination, then that's all anybody wants to play. The other one's like a stepchild. And, and on the rare occasion that you get a course like Ridgewood in New Jersey where there's 27 holes and they're all good, the people that rate golf courses still don't know how to compare that to 18-hole golf courses. They're like, well, which one are we rating? Do we count the cool short par four on the C9 or do we not? Because it's not part of the 18-hole course. So, you know, for your average public golf course trying to make money, trying to get a lot of people around, you know, that idea of having more than 18 holes and being able to take a piece out is not a bad idea at all. In Australia, a lot, like every place we consult, the first thing they want to do is build a par three 19th hole so that it's somewhere out in the golf course, not right by the clubhouse, so that they have an extra hole to play with so they can work on a couple of holes without taking things out of play, without having to have a temporary green and all that. Um, but, you know, if you want to build a great golf course that's going to get ranked as a great golf course, that's not the way you want to go. It's just too against human nature and the nature of Raiders. They don't like it. I'm I'm for a four or five hole course in like a urban area as somebody that lives in the city of Chicago. Like the idea of being able to play golf in an hour, which is the same time as somebody's workout is like, to me, like the thing that's like low hanging fruit is like, you can go to the gym or you can go play four holes of golf. Yeah. Like people will choose four holes or five holes of golf. Right. Yeah. If you lift, I mean, the big advantage of belonging to a club back in the day, you know, if, if you actually live close to the club and you were on the club and you were right there is that you could just go out and play four or five holes in the evening and jump around to where there weren't other people in the way and, you know, play a few holes. Um, so, uh, should we wrap this up with, uh, some overrated underrateds? Okay. That means it's time to wrap up. <laughs> yeah. Um, Overrated, underrated, flat, tight properties. Flat type properties. Tight. Like oh. flat and small properties for golf courses. Well, they're not overrated because n- nobody thinks much of them to start with. <laughs> so... They almost have to be underrated, but you have to be really creative to get much out of them. Agreed. I I think that's right. You, the precedent for my mind, for my money is is Garden City in New York. You know, there's first look. There's not much there, but there are lots of creative things you can do to make it very interesting. But uh, um, you gotta you gotta execute them. So, yeah, that's a good question. So, sometimes I think that. Um, you should judge architects based off of like what they did with some of their worst property versus what they did with some of their best property. Well, you know, I get that. I get that question some and, and you know, there's a lot of people that are envious of some of the pieces of property that I've got to work on. You know, I'm sure, you know, just like I used to think about Alistair McKenzie God, I wish I could have worked on some of those properties. You know, I've gotten to work on some of those properties. And, 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 you know, I mean, I think about it sometimes. Donald Ross never had a chance to work on a piece of land like Kid Kidnappers or Pacific Dunes ever. 400 golf courses, nothing like that. Um, but, you know, I don't believe that you can judge what an architect did with a given piece of ground when you go on it and it's done it's too hard to it's too hard to really dig down and try to get a sense of what was there to start with and you know how many other ways could he have done this so it just seems like inevitable i would have come up with that routing you know (laughs) i I might have moved i might have you know it's like well i would have flipped over number 11 and number 12 and it's like 
you never would have found any of the other holes. <laughs> so, so cut it out. It, um, there was a point at which at Crystal Downs, um, the club president at the time was a member of Inverness and he was buddies with Arthur Hills who had a locker right there. So Arthur Hills came up to Crystal Downs and went around the golf course with the club president and Fred Muller, the pro. And they were on the front nine. And, you know, the front nine at Crystal Downs is a pretty wild piece of ground. So they, they, they got in that stretch of five and then six coming back over the rugged ground and then seven. And, and Arthur Hills looked at Fred and said, I don't know if I would have come up with this. And Fred just laughed like, I don't think you would have. <laughs> you know, some argue is one of the, maybe the greatest stretch of golf holes in the world. <laughs> I That would have been a really hard routing to come up with. You know, when, when McKenzie started with that, the road that goes around the, the edge of it now came through some of those holes. It was. It went across the middle of six and seven fairways. So, so he's got to be looking across the road at the other side, trying to figure out how to do it. And I think you know the the hole that makes it work is number five, the short par four that hits over the hill. It's not as like up and over like Royal Melbourne, but it's it's over and around. And I, you know, I think that was just necessity as the mother of invention. You know, six will be great, seven eight but i gotta get to 16 oh i can do it this way i don't think anybody would have come up with that hole just looking at it. you could look at a map all day and not think there's a hole right there <laughs> you know that was just like okay i got some other holes now i gotta make this one work and arguably that's the most interesting hole of all of those yeah it's uh i heard uh i don't know if it's an old wives tale that um you know um Perry Maxwell was there and he was, you know, Mackenzie had been just grinding over this routing for days and he ran out of booze and Maxwell left to go get booze. And when he came back, Mackenzie was like, I, I've got it. I've got it. And then they counted up the holes and there was only 17. Is that true? I don't know if it's true. And then the ninth got the ninth hole is supposedly the extra <laughs> hole. And, you know, it was legend at crystal downs that that was a true story so <laughs> so years ago i was i got asked to write i got, actually got asked to write the chapter uh, on architecture in the centennial book for the usga like the first hundred years of golf in america very high powered writing assignment they had like the editor of the new yorker was their editor <laughs> so i was a little yeah, in right. over my head and and I had that story and I wanted to use it. And they're like, can you fact check it? I'm like, mm. <laughs> I don't know if we could fact check that. So Perry Maxwell's son was still alive, Press Maxwell. So we called him to check on it. And he's, his confirmation was, I've heard the same story. <laughs> Not necessarily, yes, that's exactly the way it happened. But that was good enough for the USGA and the editor for the New Yorker, so it's good enough for me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny story. Um, all right, last overrated, underrated, dog legs. I don't build many dog legs. Um, I, I'll, I'll say this. Dog legs with trees, overrated. Dog legs without trees, underrated. You know, if you can build a dog leg that makes somebody like bite, you invite somebody to bite off the angle, but to hit to a fairway that's angling away from them instead of straight on, I think that's a great hole. It's hard to do, you know, it's hard to do a lot of dog legs on a modern course because you're not working around trees. And you have to be really wary of somebody shortcutting into another hole that it's, you know, it's shorter, it's a better angle to the green to hit it in the next fairway over and go from there. There's a, there's a lot of that on old courses. Sometimes when you're taking down trees on older courses, <laughs> if you don't watch what you're doing, you open up something that nobody was thinking about. Um, but if you've got the space, uh, I love, you know, where the fairway is not straight, where the fair, you know, I mean, a dog leg is just a really, really a matter of uh, 
interpretation. There's always a beeline from the tee to the green. It's just some holes you can't actually hit it when you hit drive length. It's you can't find fairways straight on that line. Those are cool holes, but a dog leg where, you know, there's trees inside the corner, 200 or 250 yards off the tee. Those are really tough because on top of everything else, the more the distance keeps changing that people hit it, it doesn't work for everybody very well. It's a terrible hole when you hit a decent drive and you're a block behind a tree and you can only hit like a hundred yard shot to get yourself around the corner. Yeah, I, that's easy to sit here and agree with Tom on on that over under and, and you know a, a dogleg hole that you're hitting diagonally across you know some really cool negative space natural feature that's a that whether it's the ocean or a um, a natural wash or something you know that that works well but when the hazard is up in the air and you can't see where you're going and you don't know what happens if you hit through the dogleg and all of that that's where you really get in a spot where the holes not very desirable and if you weigh that against a perfectly straight hole that is thoughtfully and strategically bunkered i'd rather play the straight hole more often than not than you know that less desirable less good dog leg with uh something you know in the crux of it that just doesn't it's just not interesting it ends up being really one-dimensional that way and the more multi-dimensional you can be sometimes straight offers the widest variety of routes to the hole and that's the good stuff so i think a lot of my pref or a little of my preference at least too goes back to being a photographer it's like i want to see where the hole's going yeah. right you know i want to see the flag from the tee hmm. if i can see the flag from the tee and then see different ways of getting there that's great but but you know you watch tour pros you know beating it over trees over the corner of the dog leg you know i'm not good enough to do that but if i was when I got done, I'd still be standing there on the tee going, I wonder if that's in play. <laughs> you know, they know. We don't know. We can't even tell whether that worked or whether we have to hit another tee ball to be safe. It's, uh... Yeah, it, it does make you match up line and distance. But with I think as te if technology keeps going, it makes it harder and harder for it to stay relevant. That's true. I think brings up another thought too that Tom's talking about from a photographer's standpoint to be able to see the whole I, I think the whole dialogue being more or less today about routing when you can find a really good hole a long hole on the golf course where you can see the flag from the tee you might not necessarily be able to see what's going on all the way through between where you are but if you can see the flag stick on a really long golf hole you've you've got something there and you know Finding that on paper and finding it in the field are two different things. But if you can get a hole like that in your routing, that's always that's always a winner. All right, that's it for routing. Don, really appreciate the time. Um, Tom, also. And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a podcast about the loop and Michigan golf. Thanks, Andy. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.